That's right. You are listening to Windsor's Inside Pulse for the latest news, views, and opinions here in our great Windsor and Essex County region. For all our CJM listeners, you are listening to CJM 99.1 FM, reaching higher ground. And we remind you that the views and opinions expressed on this show are those of our Windsor and Sasai Pulse co-hosts and do not necessarily reflect the views of CGM or its affiliates. Please remember to like our Facebook page and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. We now have completed 10 Ward 7 by-election bonus interviews, and they are awesome. They are all on our podcast feed and Facebook page, and you can find them there. With that being said, we've got a special edition right now. We timed this perfectly right after the Ward 7 debates. It's now... Uh, September 22nd, 923. We finished watching the Bates at 9 p.m. So we're going to lead in with that story. I'm Al Tashuba, co-hosting with Daniel Lablisser and Dave Sundin and Christine Brooks. All right, team, let's uh, get right to it. We've got the advanced voting. It's two weeks away. Ward 7 by-election uh, hosted by the Young Rotary Group. Uh, Ryan Mancini, he was a guest on our program last week to introduce it. And uh it, it, Patty Handyside did a terrific job. It was two hours, power packed. 10, uh, 11 of the candidates were on there. Uh, voting dates are around the corner, September 29th, 30th, October 1st, 3rd, and of course the 5th. And uh, Daniel, your take on everything. Yeah, so uh, certainly elections coming up. Um, I think that, you know, I, th- I think there's been a lot of good coverage. I, I've really enjoyed our interviews. Uh, so as, as we mentioned, we're recording on Tuesday evening. The Rotary debate just wrapped. Um, I agree with what you said, Al. I think Patty Handyside did a fantastic job. It's a, it's worth watching for everyone. I had some sort of live running comments on my Facebook feed. Um, you know, there were four questions that the, that the candidates did not know in advance, which was different than the prior debate. So that really allows people to forces people to think on their feet, but also allows them to uh, to separate themselves from other can- candidates because they were not generic questions like we asked, which was who are you? Why should people vote for you? The first question was the hospital question. And, you know, that one was really one that I think candidates divided themselves on. I think that of the 11 candidates, six or seven said that they're 100% in support of go, go, go at the 42 site. Two maybe said they're not in support of proceeding at that site. And the other three or four, I mean, it was pretty clear that they were not all in on moving forward. So that gives a good overview for, uh, for, for the voters. It was interesting to see a number of them said, look, clearly I know that my voters in Ward 7 support moving forward with this project. Um, some, some of the candidates said that very clearly. The other, three, uh, the other three questions were interesting, some different answers there. I'd encourage everyone to watch the debate rather than just listen to what we have to say about it. So uh, Dave, well, actually, uh, D- Dave, any, any thoughts on where we're at with the election at this point? Yeah, so I, I would think that by now, those who are, are going to vote are making their minds up. Um, I guess we'll see how good the, um, the ground game of the various candidates um, uh, are. Um, the fact that it's going to be a number of days for advanced polling um, in advance of the actual election day will be will be telling. Um, so again, I, I I'm sure I mentioned this in previous shows as well. I've been I I live next door to Forest Glade, so I'm in Ward Eight, but I drive in Ward Seven frequently. It's still the same cast of characters that appear to have their signs up: um, uh, Jiwen Gill and and Angela Mariani and and Greg LeMay, um, and and not a heck of a lot of other signs out there, um, at least through the areas of Forest Glade that I drive through. So. Um, now it's just a matter of whether or not those those are indicative people who are actually going to go to the polls and vote or not. Um, so I think if you know if candidates are, are smart and, and thinking this through, they're going to have um, lit that's ready to drop right before the election, just to remind people vote for me. Um, they're going to have uh, their volunteers lined up to get that vote out, um, and uh, hopefully now the the residents of Ward Seven are paying attention and, and making their minds up. Well, Dave, let me ask you that. I mean, you you live nearby. I, uh, I had a listing out there. I was there about three times a week, sold that one. And I noticed a lot of Igor signs, G1 Gill signs, Papano, let's go with Papano. I thought was a good saying. I like it when it rhymes. I had pick Bick back, you know, to, to keep it catchy. I mean, you have to distinguish yourself out of 12 candidates. Um, my question last week, the big topic was uh, all the news articles on Igor. Are you noticing any Igor signs that maybe you noticed were there and now no longer are there? 
Yeah, I noticed that this weekend, and I'm, I was wondering if whether or not it was just a, a trick of the mind that I, I was looking okay. for it that I noticed, but it seemed to me like there was a ton of Igor signs before, and suddenly they were very few and far between, and those that were still standing looked like they had been probably kicked down and beat up a few times and put back up. So, so um, leftist mob going after maybe. Yeah, I don't know. yeah, it, it it was not a pretty sight to to. People to get see offended when when someone else takes offense on how they vote. I mean, this is. Uh, I, I think he's messaged himself out of it a little bit because it didn't come up in the debate at all. Daniel, were you, were you surprised with that? Like, it didn't come up at all. No, I, I don't think. You know, there's 12 candidates, two hours. Um, I, I, I'm not surprised that it didn't really, uh, come up unless he raised it. You know, why, if you're a candidate that's given, uh, you know, six minutes of talking on this, how much time are you going to devote to Igor at this point? So, uh, so I'm not, I'm not terribly surprised by that. The, uh, the one other thing that maybe I'll, uh, I'll put back to you guys as, uh, as, as former candidates, the thing that jumps out at me here is we really have five voting days, like, the count day is going to be the fifth, and that's obviously the final day. But you know, you can you can vote just as easily on any of the four advanced voting days. Do you think that that'll change things at all with this election? I would hope it it improves turnout. As as we know, turnout in general elections is low as it is. In by election, it's it's downright anemic. So it'd be nice to see that this you know this helps drive voter turnout at least. Um, uh, so I guess we'll see. It, it it's a good idea. I'm curious as to whether or not they had the volunteers necessary to to run an election well or not. You know, it's it's not um, like you have your healthiest and, and um, uh, most robust citizens volunteering for this. It's usually those who are seniors who have free time on their hands. And, and I'm just curious about whether they're going to show up to actually help with um, being the volunteers on Election Day itself. Yeah, I really enjoyed listening to all of them talking and it became very clear that all uh, 11 candidates that were at the debates tonight were very, are very committed to their city. They love their city and they are passionate about wanting to uh, bring us into the future and doing the right thing. Uh, making uh, this the best Windsor it can be was something I heard from several of them. Um, but I think the debates really enabled us to see the differences between them and uh, especially the uh, story, the question on the hospital location and the hospital, the building, the hospital, that really separated a few, you know, quite a few of them. Some, as you said, uh, Daniel, are really um, for it, just get it going, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. Others are definitely, I think there's no one who's against getting a hospital, as we have seen and several people have mentioned. The hospitals have been really, uh, you know, uh, just not not getting the capital necessary to keep everything uh, up to date, et cetera. So I think the hospital is not the question, it's the location for some people. And personally, I think it needs to be revisited, but um, not necessarily the way that camp has gone uh, uh, in the past to, to do this. Um, so that several of them addressed that issues and others said they don't understand what would happen to the downtown. So they stayed on the fence, but still they mentioned that. I really liked yeah. enjoyed the questions. The questions really allowed the, uh, the individuals to really explain what their priorities are. And I was a little bit disappointed with one question that asked how, um, how they were going to um, prioritize the various issues and how they were going to vote. And uh, in, it really had to do with the budget. I mean, Barbara Holland hit it right on, the, on the, the nail right on the head. It was a question that really dealt with how are you going to address the, the budget and decide how to use it. And some, some addressed it, but they basically said, well, I'm just going to check in with my constituents and, and see what they want. And personally, I mean, it's just an inefficient way. At some point you have been elected because you stand up for something and not everything that you're going to decide is going to be uh, micromanaged like that. And so I think at some point I liked uh, uh, some of the other uh, um, candidates who really said how they, what they stand for. And um, 
so they they were the the you know I, I'm a I have never you know hidden the fact that I'm a conservative and so those who were fiscally conservative right away mentioned that this is a pandemic we are in the a pandemic we have made extreme uh, we have high very high unemployment we have extreme um, uh, spending issues it's time to uh, worry about that and and maybe prioritize. Yeah, Christine, you mentioned that the number one issue was the hospital. And Daniel, you mentioned that people made a clear distinction. I think some people who were in favor of the hospital were more clear than some others who I think maybe were about 90, 95% of the way there. People who I thought were 100% of the way there were Jiwan Gill, Teresa Papineau, Teresa Papineau, and Igor. And I, I know Angelo at the end said, yeah, he's in favor, but it looks like he's still concerned about the downtown, as he should be. He's a downtown guy. Uh, Greg LeMay looked like he still was questioning a few things. Like in the end, it sounds like, but it seems like they're leaving some opening. And I don't know if Windsorites want any more opening. Like we just went through camp. We went through appeal. And I think the stronger you are, 100, not just 100, 150% clear cut, I'm in favor. I'm glad camp lost its appeal. That's how Igor said it. And G1 Gill was very strong in the issue. And it said, that's it. County Road 42. We all agree. That's it. No more talking. Let's do it. If you want to worry about logistics, we'll worry about it after the fact, not before the fact, and let's get it done. And that type of strong determination, I think, will win a majority of voters. What do you think, Daniel? Yeah, I, I, th I thought Angelo, so the three that you mentioned, but then I also thought Angelo Greg and Barb were were just as firm as as well. And, you know, Angela was the one that was most notable, in my view, because he acknowledges that two years ago he was opposed. In fact, he attacked Eric on Eric, when he ran against Eric two years ago. He attacked Eric on Eric's vote and he was clear. You know, he pledged he's doing you know, he's he's heard the voters loud and clear and that he knows that this is the side of the issue that he needs to be on to have a chance to win this thing at this point. So, uh, you, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, he was clear as to where he now stands on the issue. And, and so I thought that those six were, were pretty clear. I thought that, and I might be missing some, you can check my Facebook page. I gave a summary of what, what all of them said, just coming back to what Christine said, the, uh, the question that you were mentioning was really what criteria would you consider in in dealing with large capital projects? And the and Patty Handersides gave the example of the uh, the recent Beacon project, a future new library, and um, and City Hall Plaza redevelopment as examples of large projects. But the question was on that criteria, and I think that a, a number of candidates kind of went down the rabbit hole about talking about those specific projects rather than dealing with the issue of the criteria. I, I agree with what you said. I, I thought Barb Holland was strong on that point. Um, there were a couple of others that I thought, I thought actually Howard Weeks and Igor were quite strong on, on those topics as well in focusing more on this issue of criteria rather than the specific projects. So, uh, so I'm going to steal the last word on the debate and I'm going to take us into our next Ward seven by-election topic, which was a uh, which was a pretty big media hit that uh, Farah Al Hajj got last week, middle of last week. She did a press conference and she managed to see she seemed to get most of the media out there with a concern that the Little River Golf Course was going to get convert was going to get sold off by the city and converted into housing or developed or something like that. So she got a pretty good media hit with that pitch, got all the media out. There was a, you know, I think that for people who sort of criticize or, or who watch how how campaigns work, she did, she did pretty good on, on getting that media hit. And I think she did so good that the mayor came out the next day and said, well, hold on, we're not gonna sell it for development, but he did say that the plan is to ultimately the expectation is that it will be converted to stormwater retention ponds as part of the uh, as part of the sewer master plan. So I thought that um, Farah did a nice, you know, she really she owned that issue last week. And after the chaos that we had the prior week with Igor, I think that uh, I, I think that Farah kind of got a nice win with, you know, pitching something that was on nobody's radar. And the mayor had to come out the next day and not accept what she was saying, but acknowledge that, you know, Ward 7, Ward 8, East End residents may not see, um, may not see the Little River Golf Course in the same, in the same way that it's been for a while. So, uh, so that kind of tees up that issue. Um, Al, some thoughts on, uh, on, on that topic? 
Well, I think Little River is such an easy golf course that if they made some sewer lakes inside the golf course and actually had those as retention and put some obstacles in, that actually would be a win-win situation. If she proposed something like that, it'd, it'd be brilliant. So I, I think it's, he created a straw man. I don't think the city of Windsor had any intentions of selling it, certainly not in this term, and for her to get the media out. But she also was swarmed in with all the Igor things, so might have got slipped by. I, I don't know if that's that's an issue. The, the mayor squashed it. Um, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, it, that is the very big deal in Ward 7. That's a green space. It's land. It's a golf course. It's city owned. It's, uh, she said, either it should be a park. or I, I trust that the city council, especially with the progressives, uh, environmental facts, it's not going to be sold off for development. It, it belongs to the city. There's so much land out there. You don't need to develop exactly that. So I'm not worried yeah. about it. I, I didn't I didn't see Farah as, as an overly strong candidate, but that was very smart on her part and a way to galvanize um, a, a decent segment of the population in, in Forest Glade in particular. People just love that golf course. Um, the, it is an easy golf course, right? So it, it's a great spot for the young residents of Forest Glade to go learn how to golf. So people that may not have voted might, might be paying attention now. Um, and I think Farah's earned their support. So, you know, kudos to her. Yes, I thought the same thing, Dave, because I was just surprised towards the end of Brian Cross's article. Um, uh, they, they mention, uh, the people are mentioning uh, that they will vote uh, for her, that it's really important to their community, that their kids learn golf there, that this is an outlet, this, there are not that many parks, they're worried already about the buildings that might come in, in, in the stead, and uh, for, you know, apart from the, re the water retention uh, area. So, yeah, it was, I don't believe it, you know, that it was, uh, that all this is in the workings, that it will disappear, but uh, it has become an issue so suddenly, and so she may have gotten a few votes from that. Yeah, I think that this issue of the two city golf courses may become a larger issue. And I've seen some rumblings behind the scenes and some questions about, you know, Roseland is there as well. And there's been rumors and, you know, it's at this point, nothing more than rumors. Um, but I, I think that it is on some people's radar. And, you know, it's interesting. We have the Roseland Championship course, which is a which is a local gem. But in some ways, it's not really, it doesn't act like a traditional Muni golf course. The, the traditional Muni golf courses are kind of the par three and, and, uh, and Little River, which are more trainer courses, whereas Roseland is this championship course. And, um, and, and so I, I think that the issue of the city-owned golf courses is going to be more on people's radar in the, in the, coming, uh, in, in the coming years. So, uh, so uh, Dave, you, you had a comment, and then Christine? Yeah, so, you know, and I think part of the, the, the speculation uh, about the closure uh, of Little River wasn't helped by the fact that Roseland opened, um, you know, uh, fairly early on in the pandemic and, and Little River remained closed, which just, you know, got the rumor mill going even stronger saying, yeah, see, it's a plan, it's an imminent plan to, to get rid of uh, Little River. Um, so, so that wasn't helpful either, but uh, understandable. I, I, don't, I don't think Little River has ever been overly financially viable. Um, so that, that's probably part of the issue as well. Yeah, I was just going to mention that I, I just didn't understand and I still don't really understand why the one uh, golf course would be open and the other not. I know it's COVID times, but I mean, if the one opens, why not the other? They're quite apart and uh, far apart. So they are servicing different areas of the city, presumably. So I don't really know why the one and not the other. Well, Dave, you've segued us, segued us nicely into, or Al, you got a comment there? Yeah, there are two and a half million dollar homes now on the perimeter of Roseland Golf Course. Yes. There's no way this golf course is not that specifically to be on the golf course. I mean, at most, the city might sell Roseland for a 99 year contract that it must remain a golf course, maybe privatize it. I'd be open to something like that, but they're not going to tear it down and put development because then it'll kill all the value. There'll be tons of lawsuits. No way. A different issue. Little River across the street it has its own containment there. It's not like houses are totally counting on it to, to, to be there. It was an interesting issue. This issue for the debate didn't come up, neither did the Igor issue. Uh, it was about mega hospital and other key things. And I think everyone had a fair chance. And you want to know something? I think our, our interviews on Windsor's Inside Pulse uh, actually allowed the candidates to have more time, just as much time, with as much information 
as it was all chopped up in 11 pieces. So uh, it, it was a good informational session, as was our interviews. So Al endorses us. Um, <laughs> True. Well, Dave, we've, we've teed up nicely segueing this into COVID. So let's start working through our COVID stories. Yeah, I, I think you did. So, you know, the, the golf course can be used to socially distance. Um, and that's a necessity going forward because we are sliding backwards in, in some degrees. Uh, so as our listeners well know, Windsor-Essex was the, the last into phase two, the last into phase three. Um, and we were treated differently, and suddenly the whole province is being treated the same again with restrictions on gathering sizes. So the uh, Premier Doug Ford announced on Saturday that indoor events and gatherings can now only have 10 people compared to the previous 50, and outdoor events and gatherings are allowed 25 people compared to the previous one, um, uh, 100. Um, so the, the medical officer of health, uh, Dr. Ahmed, uh, locally uh, announced, um, you know, just so you know, if you're having an event, you got to choose indoor or outdoor. You can't combine those two numbers and say we have an indoor and outdoor event. We have 35 people. It's it's either you know 10 indoors, 25 outdoors. That's it. No combination. Um, and the warning from the medical officer of health locally is he expects um, that uh, the province will be um, enforcing these new restrictions um, with a, an organizer of an event being fined um, to, up to $10,000 and guests find up to $750 and expects that um, in order to keep COVID under control, which is spiking in other areas of the province, thankfully still remains quite low in Windsor-Essex, um, that uh, this will get under control quickly. So um, your thoughts on this, Christine, is this um, too, yes. too, too restrictive or, or just the right medicine? I, I think it was necessary, unfortunately. I've been going to various uh, uh, well, I went to an outdoor mass, for example, for 100 people. It probably was the last thing, uh, as uh, uh, Doug Ford was mentioning, the change in, uh, in uh, restrictions. And there were 100 people outdoors. It is very, very difficult in, in, in situations, I, I notice everywhere, to keep people from, uh, at a two uh, meter distance. I don't know why. I want to scream, I don't know, it's just two meters, just stay two meters, but apparently this is not possible. Um, I don't know what it is. I think it's, it's uh, fatigue, COVID fatigue. I think it, it's, it's uh, resilience and kind of saying, well, we didn't get it, so it's, I'm not gonna get it. I don't know what it is. It's youth, it's a tiredness of everything, but I think it is necessary to remind and maybe this will do it. I know that, it is becoming colder and I think the virus does better in cold. And so we really need to just keep it going. Just stay strong until we have a vaccine. And that's what we really need to do. Yeah, I, I think ultimately this rollback probably was necessary. Um, it's, it's better to be overly cautious. Um, I, I, so I, I think that this rollback is fine and hopefully it protects us from rolling back actually into stage two or stage one. Well, we have, for instance, the U.S. border. Uh, Christine, what happened recently? Well, recently we have had a, a, a very uh, a good story, but it took six months to happen. So uh, unfortunately, uh, a woman is dying here in Windsor and her parents were in the States. It took until from all of March until, to, uh, until a few days ago uh, for them to be able to come visit their daughter now that she is actually in, um, you know, in, in her dying uh, days. Um, Diane's daughter, Shayla, was very happy. Uh, she says, oh my goodness, mom was so happy. She does have delirium, but when she saw her parents, she was totally present. And so it was a good story. Uh, it was made possible through uh, Brian Massey and others who really worked on this, but we need to see this more because I think COVID has made uh, dying for dying people very sad. Well, I'm glad they make the, made the exemption because of compassionate reasons as well. But if you also think that we have a lot of Windsor workers who are working in Michigan hospitals dealing with COVID directly and they're totally exempt. So why don't we soften the exemptions a little bit as well? I'm sure there's some people who have critical business meetings or they don't need to be dying. There's probably a lot of other exemptions they can do uh, if this one worked out, you know, measured accordingly. Um, I hope we don't go into a, a new wave where they roll them back, but I'm happy at least this exemption went through. Dan? Yeah. 
I, I'd like, you know, more generally, yeah, I think that this is good that this woman got this exemption, although it's an unfortunate story. I think, though, that we do ultimately need more of a plan to reopen the border more generally, um, especially for board, for people in the border region. Um, and so, so we, I think that we need a plan to figure out how we're going to start to do this. Just pushing it down the road every month totally um, doesn't, doesn't seem to be, you know, it, it seems to be creating more expectations and problems rather than a, you know, what, what's our target here? What's our game plan? Well, it probably doesn't help either. We, you know, President Trump in the news saying the Canadians want to open it and the Canadians say, no, we don't. Um, but, uh, you, you know, we are a border region. Um, we, we go back and forth across the border constantly, at least we did prior to the pandemic, back across the border constantly, both for pleasure and for work. Uh, we, we got friends and family in the areas. Uh, this is going to be an ongoing issue. Um, so we need to find some way to um, make travel uh, at least locally safe, um, you know, anyone listening in, in Detroit knows that that Windsor is their backyard and, and Detroit's our backyard and that's just the way it's been for for generations so you know we, we just had to turn a switch off and it's it's created a lot of problems and and um, this story with the dying woman is just just one of, of, of many problems that are facing um, you know families that are that are cross-border and so that leads us into our next story about um, other organizations planning for to deal with the pandemic, and we have the University of Windsor announcing um, that they plan to, um, uh, they're actually going to continue their online only learning through the next spring, so they're preemptively doing that. Um, thoughts on that, uh, Daniel? Yeah, I think it's good that they announced this now. I think it was going to happen regardless. The more time you can give people in advance to figure out their living arrangements, figure out what they're going to be doing, the better. I, I thought, it, certainly in the States, I thought that there were some universities using a bait and switch, telling people it was going to be business as usual in person. And as soon as they got those tuition dollars in and uh, and money in for, uh, for on-campus housing, they said, no, it's going to be by Zoom. So, uh, you know, I credit the University of Windsor for announcing early this uh, plan. It allows everyone to prepare a little bit better. Al? I had speculation on this with some other sources from the academia that this was going to happen. Uh, it seemed pretty certain. I'm, I'm concerned about the housing market in the area. There's a lot of vacancies. Uh, we have a lot of international students who wanted to actually participate in class, but if they're here now and they're going next year, maybe they could still get the ambiance. Maybe they can open up some labs. Maybe they can do some type of on-campus participation uh, aside from the classes. Uh, and figure it out. And again, if a vaccine comes sooner rather than later, then maybe it won't be so bad. Christine? Yes, my husband had said he, he expected this to happen. I didn't believe him, and there it is. There will be, of course, ex exceptions as uh, necessary. For example, those uh, courses needing face-to-face -face interaction, like for um, uh, nurses and needing uh, training. Uh, in hospitals and, and opportunities for science uh, labs to be run, et cetera, laboratory uh, tests, et cetera. But uh, yes, it, it makes student life really different for students. And I, I can't help but feel that uh, I had thought that we would be already past this stage. Really, I had expected that we would be able to have students return as usual in, in uh, for the winter term. Well, this is going to wrap up the first half of Windsor's Inside Pulse. When we come back after the break, we're going to be talking about some new released information about Caesars Windsor. Uh, we're going to be talking about some additional automotive deals that we've all mentioned and highlighted in previous shows. And as always, we're going to follow up with them as need be. This is uh, going to be an excellent half hour. Be sure to come back after our commercial break. And we're back. You are listening to the second half of Windsor's Inside Pulse recorded now, Tuesday, September 22nd. And if you're listening to CJM 99.1 FM, we are reaching higher ground for our great region. I'm Al Toshiba, co-hosting with Daniel Lablisser and Dave Sundin and Christine Brooks. So last week and week before, we talked about an idea for Caesars Windsor to go kind of around the 50 occupancy rule for establishments and say, hey, let's separate the Caesars Windsor 10,000 square feet and separate it into 12 quote unquote pods. And this way we can have 50 people in 12 pods and at least we can have 600 people and maybe function as some type of decent, uh, viable, profitable organization. And that was tampied about, but uh, that's not the idea on the table right now. 
believe it or not, after originally Caesars Windsor saying they cannot, under any circumstances pretty well, open with 50 people, they're now saying they're going to do it. They are going to open with 50 people just to get the ball rolling. There's so many restrictions. You have to be invited. You have to take a survey, I guess, temperatures, masks, full protection. And basically, you're not playing table games. You're not playing poker. You are basically just playing slots. So limited capacity, not too much service needed. But you know what? It gets the ball rolling, and you don't need a special exemption to have 12 designated uh, pod areas of 50 people each. It'll be 50 people allowed inside, just like every other establishment, and at least it's going to get the ball rolling. So I think, personally, it's better than closing. It, it doesn't matter if they lose money. I think the ambiance of just let's open, let's get things going is a good first step. Thoughts, people? Yeah, so I don't know how the business model is going to work with 50 people. It mentions they're, they're bringing back 100. The customer ratio is, is completely out of whack. So I'm not sure how the business model works, but the business model close doesn't work either, right? The, the building's sitting there empty, but, but there's still a ton of expenses involved with keeping that building there. So, um, you know, this is the first step and, and it's a good news story um, to, to hear that at least we're moving in the right direction. We're, we're reopening Caesars Windsor in some ways. Um, we know this is the city's, one of the city's biggest employers. Ton, ton of spinoff benefits from having this employer here. Um, so, you know, st step one, get 50 people in the doors, um, and then hopefully we'll see expand from there and return to as normal as is possible in, in the current circumstances. I think it's important, you know, um, to have uh, entertainment and to have people go out again. And it's a very positive and, and, and uplifting Thing for many people to see other people in, in, in a familiar ambiance and uh, the idea that uh, we you know people will be able to go maybe they'll even be able to eat there I don't know if that's no no food no then but it's a beginning and I think uh, uh, really a lot of people enjoy the the casino myself involved I love slots so um, I hope I get invited yeah um I mean, I don't see how this is going to work with 50 people. The, one of the things that I don't understand is, I guess that the rule is it's 50 customers. I don't understand, like employees are breathing too. So I don't, I don't understand how you have a 50 person limit indoors that doesn't count your employees, but I guess it doesn't count the employees. I think maybe the reality is they're gonna take a loss here, but this is almost like a soft reopening where they're going to start testing being open and then with a plan to maybe get to this pod system or something, I, I don't think that you can operate on 50, uh, 50 customers. Now, maybe they're going to only invite the high rollers and they know that's where their best margins are and, and that'll work. But I, I just, it's not my business, but I don't see it. I don't see it working in a, uh, in a financially efficient way. Well, let's take a look at Costco, Walmart, uh, the grocery stores. There's more than 50 customers going on in there and they were deemed essential services and still it was safety and they're touching items, okay? They're touching items and it's not like someone's going to clean the apple after they put it back. People are touching. And, you know, it was deemed essential. You obviously have to eat, you have to get food. So it was considered acceptable. I think we've learned a lot in the last six, seven months. And I think the wearing masks and the distancing and the, and the hand washing and the sanitation I think the most important thing here is not the profitability. And I agree with Dave and Daniel. It's not going to be very viable. They're going to be losing money. But the key is to open, to consider that, hey, there's some normalcy. Now, will it be shut down again very quickly if we go into uh, a second type of outbreak? I don't know. But at least it was moving in the right direction. And, you know, the lights of Caesars will go back up. And still there had to be security people there even when, when they were closed. And there was some level of maintenance and sanitation. I, I think overall, it's good to open. Don't worry about the profit and balance sheet right now. Maybe they'll file for some business serve type uh, uh, accommodation. But for right now, let's get the people working and let's get our second biggest industry back in action. Well, the casino is the government, so I don't know who it can apply for money from. <laughs> well, I meant Caesar's <laughs> operation, obviously. So, well, talking about our our second biggest employer is a great way to tie into our first biggest employer, which is, of course, the automotive industry. And so some good news this week for uh, for Windsor-Essex. Um, uh, kudos to the bargaining team for Unifor, who's reached a, uh, a tentative deal, at least, with Ford. 
which involves importantly bringing new products to Ontario. So Oakville is the big winner here. No surprise. Oakville was the, um, uh, the, 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 the group who was doing the bargaining on behalf of uh, Unifor um, to, set the, uh, to set the precedent for the others to follow. And so uh, Oakville is getting a, a huge injection, including uh, constructing uh, batteries. However, there's also promises of um, uh, more investments in the local Ford engine plant here in Windsor, Essex. Are we wow. still the Are we still the automotive capital of Canada with Oakville getting this big deal? I, I think we are. At the end of the day, uh, what's good for Oakville, what's good for Ontario, uh, will help with uh, auto supplies, manufacturing, the streamlining. Certainly, our our border, uh, relying on the new Gordie Howe International Crossing, the trade with our American friends and neighbors and partners. So that's okay. Uh, we did predict on this show. Every one of us said we don't think there was going to be a strike. And Jerry Diaz, uh, as much as he talks very tough, he is yet to produce something. You know, a strike mandate of any severity or or any uh, major. Um, uh, consequences on the autos. He's been more of a deal maker than one that pulls the trigger on the strikes. So I, it, it went as predicted. Uh, they're moving on to the next company. Again, I don't see strikes along the way, not with the pandemic. I think everyone's kind of recognizing some unique circumstances. Let's get back to work. And I think it's good for Windsor and good for Ontario. Yeah, so good good news with the uh, the Ford deal coming together. Sounds like there's going to be a $2 billion investment in, uh, in retooling, primarily for Oakville. I think the piece of this that there's been some news on, actually the Detroit Free Press has covered it a bit more than the Canadian news today, is how much money the Canadian federal government is kicking in as part of this. There were some rumors, I think, yesterday that the feds were going to kick in $500 million, apparently... Uh, the announcement today, the suggestion was that it's a bit less than that. So I think that's something to watch. I'm not opposed to, you know, for major manufacturers like that, the government being part of it. But, uh, you, you know, at, at a certain point, you've got to do that cost benefit analysis um, rather than just print money constantly. So I think this is good news. Um, Daniel, can I give you the cost benefit analysis? Uh, five, $500 million is going to equal approximately uh, 50,000 votes from the auto people. So they'll be able to say, we saved the auto industry and those will equate into votes. Never mind the benefits of taxes or anything like that. And I, Harper did it too. Harper did it, you know, to bail out for 2008. And uh, it was used for campaign messaging around Windsor Essex. So it's part of the politics. I don't disagree with it, especially as an upcoming election year uh, in the federal politics. And I'm just happy that we're saving our auto industry because it is competitive out there and companies do need this assistance, especially in the pandemic. You're, you're a little more, I think you're right, Al, but you're a little bit more cynical than me about that. And it's a good year to, to bury $500 million in the budget because who's going to notice it this year? It, it, exactly, because money's <laughs> Good, very good point. Good point there. But, but just coming back to, uh, to Chrysler, certainly I think for Windsor, this is... Uh, this is ultimately good news because by Ford saying we're committing the $2 billion to Ontario, that certainly sets the benchmark for there's going to be an ask from Chrysler. Um, and, you know, and now we get that, we may have that fight on the Chrysler front that, you know, Unifor says, hey, we had a great relationship with Ford and we got a deal done relatively quickly. Um, and, you know, I guess we'll see now where we are with Chrysler, but I, I'm hopeful that this Ford going first actually sets a good benchmark that will help Windsor with Chrysler by by Unifor being able to say time to step up Chrysler Ford just put two billion bucks into the province time for you to uh, do your investment so Christine yeah I think it's important also um, for the future I think uh, it, it was an important deal in order to see how you know to consolidate and see how the the path was going to work for the automotive industry in the future in Ontario did I understand correctly that it has to do with, uh, you know, putting monies towards electric cars? Yeah, I think that the, uh, we're still getting the pieces of it, but it sounds like there will be five new products built out of Oakville. And it sounds like either most or all of them are going to be electric. And that's another reason that I think that the government being part of this is important. That's, you know, that's part of a green economy and the government does have a role to play in that. So I think that's the, uh, but yes, so the plan is electric. Yeah, I think it's really important that we start putting our, our you know, efforts into that because the uh, outside of our of Canada, um, there's a lot of competition out there. The Chinese are very, very strong in this area. So I think it's time we do it as well. Um, 
look to to become greener? Well, I was going to say, speaking of electric cars, it's just one component to make the cars. What needs to happen is more charging stations, uh, the possibility of having gas stations that can also quickly uh, exchange batteries of, of similar sizes if they end up with a standard that's underneath the vehicle. So that's similar like propane tanks, you bring in your empty one and they just give you a full one. Whereas, you know, it used to be that they fill them up and then they realize why don't we just have one station to fill them up, they give us one tank, they take another one. So give your old battery and get a new recharge battery at different gas stations. And I think this is the way it's going to go. Right now, the, the people themselves are used to, they started off with hybrids. Now they're starting off with pure, they're going into pure electric. Now the government's endorsing it. That's the new line for the automotive sector. And we're on the cutting edge over here. So as long as these cars improve and you look at Tesla that not only figured out the electric component of it and is, are looking to get their battery life longer, but they also are stylish and expensive and people want them. So there is a, a paradigm shift of demand for these electric vehicles. And it is very good that we're on the cutting edge of this and producing this, or we are going to be out of market. We could just be out in one cycle of people's demands and then quickly try to catch up. So I was very pleased to read the electric component of it. And I'm hoping that Canada and Ontario also get on the cutting edge of providing more ease for these electric vehicles to travel longer distances on the road. And so again, this is an important news story for us as the automotive capital of Canada, which we're trying to, uh, to maintain. Um, and I think that, that leads nicely into the next story, which talks about um, the narrowing of Wyandotte uh, to two lanes, this, this idea of a road diet. So supposed to be the car capital, but um, I guess they want to see less, fewer cars on, on Wyandotte, or at least cars going slower on Wyandotte. Um, so, you know, the, the new story is um, basically that Councillor Geniac, um, which has a, a huge stretch of wine that, that goes through her ward, um, is advocating for this uh, idea to put in more bike lanes, um, more parking, uh, to, to have this, this uh, it goes along with the 2019 Active Transportation Master Plan, which calls for uh, more cycling um, and, and hopefully using this to uh, help merchants out along that stretch of roadway by people slowing down and stopping and frequenting the shops. Um, so it's similar to what the city did just a few years ago on a stretch of Wyandotte between roughly Devonshire um, going back towards um, the tunnel where it was traditionally four lanes and it's gone down to two now with, with buffers people can't pass on the right, um, a bike lane and, and, and more parking. So um, what are your thoughts on this? Good idea, bad idea? Will it work as planned? I don't, I don't understand it completely. Um, our city is, is growing and we are reducing the number of lanes. This really, uh, I mean, at the same point, then you're going to have to make sure that people don't buy these huge uh, uh, vehicles. We have uh, people, so many people with trucks out there. Um, I'm on uh, Riverside Drive now every day rather than taking EC Row, which is blocked up. So I'm taking uh, Riverside Drive and there's a stretch of Riverside Drive that is four lanes and you can't really have four big vehicles side by side. It's like, uh, it's, it, it's kind of illusionary. This, these lines are not real. So I'm thinking uh, in the same way though, our, our, we have a lot of traffic. Why are we reducing? I also still question having, trying to have a road do everything for every type of uh, transportation. Why are we having uh, bikes and trucks and parking and uh, you know uh, vehicles? I think we have to sometimes uh, privilege one type of transport over others. That's my opinion. I think uh, Christine, you're 100 percent right. There needs to be major traffic studies before you start saying, hey, let's take two lanes and bring it down to one. Okay, how's that going to affect traffic? Are you going to change the timing of the traffic lights? Are you going to make them start smart traffic lights? What happens if no one's using these bike lanes? Is there a demand for it compared to the cars? Are you going to create more backlogs? I mean, this has to be studied. It can't just appeal to the you know, to the environmentalists and to the cyclists and, and say, okay, we'll give you more lanes. Is it needed? You know, I, I know Paul Borelli took a lot of heat when he was a counselor about saying that you could ride on the sidewalks because that's the way they do it in Europe. But imagine having a sidewalk that's not used and then you have a specific bike lane in between the cars that are parked where they open the doors and they can hit the bikes, right? 
it, I've never I've never seen this as such a mandatory thing on to, to try to create the old ones. And if you're losing a lane uh, of cars for bike lanes and there's not enough bikes, but there's definitely would be cars. What's the consequence of this? So it's an interesting proposal. Uh, I just I just want to see the mathematics behind it. And I want to hear some uh, input from the engineers and from the uh, computer models that actually take in the, the volume of traffic and actually portray how it would look like. Christina, I see your... Yeah, I just want to say that I'm an avid bike rider so that I just don't, that people don't think that uh, I have something against bike riders because I am an avid bike rider. And, uh, but I also want safety. And I also think that there's enough road rage to go around in this town that we really need to keep it flowing as opposed to getting people even more angry on the roads. Yeah, so uh, last time this Riverside road diet thing was up, I certainly made a lot of enemies in the uh, progressive uh, crowds in this town. Um, look, we've had the study. The active transportation master plan was the study. That was what deferred this three years ago. And if you actually read the active transportation master plan, it says that this stretch of Wyandotte has some of the lowest potential for active transportation in the city. So why did we have that study? If we're now just going to ignore it, it said this stretches is low to, in certain areas, medium priority. But of course, certain people, you know, that want to take out their rage on cars um, are, are, push, are pushing this through. Now, look, here's my view. If the residents of Ward 6 and Ward 7, who this affect, if they if they support it and their counselors support it, then you know I I can live with that. What I don't think is that this should be hoisted upon them by more urbanist counselors, um, you, you know, who 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 want to sort of spread that to other neighborhoods. So if the if the neighborhoods support it, I can live with that. Now I think that you do have to recognize that ultimately Wyandotte is an artery. So yeah, of course the businesses want slower traffic. They want people to stop in front of their business and see their business. And that's a factor. We should be factoring that in. But you also have to look at the road as a thoroughfare. And in, you know, in terms of the bike lanes, look, we have the stats from Stats Canada. 1% of our mode of transportation for work in this city is by bike. That's pretty low. Um, and, and so to give, to give the bikes I don't know, 15% of the right of way for 1% of traffic, I think is ridiculous. Um, you know, in terms of what the businesses would want, they'd probably be just as content if you just put planters out there. They want the cars slower. And, and there's there's something to be said for slowing down the cars, but there's also something to be said for the efficiency of having a road work the right way. Yeah, I think it comes down to, you know, what you want this to accomplish, right? So um, I, I was opposed to it when it was um, first proposed along the stretch of Wyandotte that got this first, which is, Destruction wind out around the Devonshire Road area going back towards the tunnel. Well, that went from four down to two and, and was beautified, but that was a, an entire streetscaping project, right? Uh, and we saw it pay off in droves of the commercial tenants along there, um, where, where now that's a destination spot for restaurants and for shopping, finally, after being um, a dead zone for, for a couple of decades. So um, that area really turned around because of, you know, the city built it and, and they came. Um, and so if you want that to happen along different stretches of Wyandotte, such as Pilet Village, which has had a, a bit of a struggle to kind of revitalize and, and reintroduce itself and other sections of Wyandotte, that's one thing. But uh, I, I think I agree with you, Daniel, which is um, there needs to be a few east and west routes for bikes, a few north and south north and south roads for bikes but we don't need to have a dedicated bike lane on every street in the city um, given the the lack of use of, of bikes in general and the lack of use um, by bikers of actual bike lanes um, I, I I've had almost every day this week a, a run-in with a cyclist who I've almost struck because they're riding down the sidewalk the wrong way and you're making a turn you don't see them until the last second because they're coming the wrong way on the on the sidewalk they're not using the bike lanes so I I get it. It's it's frustrating for drivers as it is all the the problems get across the city, and then you add that into the mix as well. It's even more problematic. So what you're saying, Dave, is Paul Borelli was right. People love biking on our thousands of kilometers of sidewalk. He was he was very observant, obviously. <laughs> I, I, I want to add one thing that Daniel said. Not not the last thing, but about three minutes ago. Um, it is a Ward 7 and a Ward uh, I guess 5 and 6 going into the area on on Wynad Street. I would give deference, if this gets in front of city council, 
I would give almost two to one deference on the way those ward counselors would vote and their input from their community rather than somebody like in ward uh, one or nine or 10 that it doesn't affect having some input. And I would hope that common courtesy among counselors when it's an infrastructure project on that ward kind of take a step back and let that ward counselor truly reflect what the people of that ward want to say for that infrastructure project without ramming it through and saying, oh, we need bike lanes, we need the, okay, but if the citizens don't. So I'd hate to see some type of vote where it runs through those wards and they got outvoted by everyone else. And meanwhile, their citizens, their residents didn't want it. So uh, I, good point on that one. I would think that it should be the transport uh, study that uh, takes precedence. And frankly- Oh, for sure. I agree with that too. But if it got to a vote is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I also think that the safety comes first. And I think safety also means that the the car cars and trucks can go without always having to think of uh, bikes. And, and I really do think that there are roads that should be uh, without bikes, just as there should be uh, roads that privilege bike uh, travel in this city. And some people really think that you could do everything on one road. I really don't think so. And I think it just becomes very, very problematic. It causes an increase in uh, accidents. Well, uh, that takes us nicely to our final story on, uh, on on road projects, and this is actually a story that comes from us to us from uh, from the county. So, Essex County Council um, passed a. I, I guess that they are moving forward with effectively straightening out Banwell Road where it connects to Concession Eleven. So. I'll try to paint the picture here. When Banwell Road hits 42, you have to make a brief right before a left onto concession 11. There's all sorts of traffic problems there because of that. 20 years ago, there was a plan to straighten that out. It's kind of sat for a while. Certainly that's going to be an important connection to the new hospital on County Road 42. So, so County Council is, uh, is now moving forward with uh, with re-straightening out or moving forward with the purchases of land that they will need to make Banwell connect into concession 11 without having to do a uh, well to use the wind up bike lane language a zigzag so uh, so uh, let's let's work our way around on this Al uh, any any thoughts on uh, on what the county is doing here Again, anything that they do, I would just hope that they get proper input from their residents and computer model it and make sure that it's something that makes sense without doing, uh, you know, an ideological position just for the sake of doing that. that. That's all I have to say and get the input from the residents. It might be a, a long time. Uh, it's been a long time back in 2002, Tecumseh handed over 6,500 acres and end, uh, ends up now, it was supposed to start in 2014. Uh, of course, the cost has kept on going up. I, I suppose this is now is a really bad deal for Tecumseh having to uh, realign the two roads. Well, uh, Al, kept, Al ran a tight ship tonight, and that gets us just to the end of our show. So thank you once again for joining us on Windsor's Inside Pulse. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Join us on Facebook at Windsor's Inside Pulse for show updates. And check out our interviews. The election is two weeks away in Ward 7. Thank you for joining us. Have a great week, and we will see you next next week. All right. Thanks for listening.